Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. And I'm Sandrine Berges from Bill Kent University, Ankara. Hi everybody, it's Beth here. And it's Radiothon time. This is the time of the year when you can donate and keep your favourite radio program on air. All the broadcasters here at 3CR are volunteers and rely on your support to keep their programs going. Radical Philosophy still needs to raise $500 for our target this year. So you can jump online at the website on 3CR and go to the Donate page for Radiothon and mention that your donation is for Radical Philosophy. And if everybody listening could just donate $5, we'd have our target of over $500. Thanks very much and enjoy the program. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. So glad you tuned in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Eliza Galgut about animal welfare and rights. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Beth. It's great to be here. So could you give us a little bit of background information about yourself? Uh, Yes, I am a philosopher. Uh, I teach in the philosophy department at the University of Cape Town. Um, and I, I am South African. I did my undergraduate degree and a master's degree at um, the University of the Witwatersrand, which we call Wits uh, for obvious reasons. And then I did a, a PhD at Rutgers University in, in philosophy. Um, and then I got the job at the University of Cape Town. Um, and my main areas of interest besides issues about animal rights are um actually philosophy of art and literature and philosophy of psychoanalysis. I'm very interested in those areas and I write poetry um, in my in my spare time. Oh, great. So what was it that inspired you to study animal welfare and rights? Um, I've always been interested in, I think, issues of animal welfare. From a fairly young age, I um, we had dogs and cats, and I've always loved animals. In fact, when I was younger, I thought maybe I should become a vet. And um, and then I became interested in philosophy. But I was so for a long time I wasn't very active in the animal welfare, animal rights issues. I mean, I was a vegetarian and then became vegan. But um, it was really only when I I got uh, seconded onto an animal ethics committee at the University of Cape Town, which we call UCT. So um, because I'm a a philosopher, they wanted some philosophers on the committees, which I think is, is you know, fair enough, is a very good, good idea. Um, And then I got, 
I was on the faculty committee. So how it works at UCT is that there are two faculty committees, one for health sciences and one for science. And those committees are very practical committees. They meet once a month and they look at protocols and they decide what should we accept, what, to, what should we reject. And then there's an, an overarching committee called the Senate Annual Ethics Committee, and that's responsible for policy. So um, a colleague of mine was, I think, was on both committees. And then he asked me if I wanted to join the Health Sciences Committee and the Senate Committee. And it was once I was on those committees when I realized that um, a lot of the commitment, alleged commitments to animal, both animal welfare, and animal, well, the notion of animal rights doesn't really come up um, on, um, on ethics committees that look at animal experimentation. Because if you took animal rights seriously, then almost none of the experiments would be done. But even the alleged commitment to animal welfare um, and the balancing of interests, which is supposed to happen on a committee, I felt was not taken seriously enough. And I think that that was the start of my determination to, to make things, to make a difference. And then I became the chair of the Senate Animal Ethics Committee, I think because nobody else wanted to do it. And I was very, very, very naive. And somebody said, you know, why don't you chair this committee? It'll be good for your CV. And I'm like, okay, it's a small committee. It doesn't really do much. Um, but then once I was the chair of the committee, I decided actually I'm going to use my position to, to effect real change. And that's when the battles um, to change policy began. It must have been fairly difficult because I suppose when you're on one of the ethics committees, you you really do need to approve some of the experiments. You can't just say no to everything, can you? Yes, and there's always that dilemma. So for a long time, my uh, colleague, who's also uh, he's a philosopher, he also writes on on animal rights. Um, for a long time, we discussed whether there was an ethical problem with being on those committees. I actually was not on the health science committee for very long because I, I did feel a little bit morally compromised. I don't think, you know, I think it is important for people who care about uh, animals to be on those committees because I think you do, you can make a difference. Um, I think if we refuse to be on those committees because we think it's totally against my, everything that is, is happening on the committee is totally against my principles. It's very difficult to affect change. I think it is important to affect change from the inside. Even if things happen on your watch, which you're not very happy about, if you can affect change from the inside, I think it is, um, it is a worthwhile thing to do. One has to be pragmatic. You are not living in an ideal world. But I think I felt that I could do more on the, policy committee because their policy really does affect change and those committees did not look they weren't really in the business of that committee wasn't really in the business of uh, inspecting protocols so it felt like a much more um morally a morally better thing to do so um, could you explain about some of the cultural practices that harm animals yeah, so you mean cultural practices generally in society. Um, yes, I think, you know, just, just sort of comparing, um, you know, let's just talk about um, 
so the animal ethics committees what's very interesting is that if you if you ask general people you know what do they think of animal experimentation often people get very upset and um they they're kind of opposed to it um and they think no no it's it's a terrible thing and yet in a way if we are to justify the use of animals using animals for medical research is probably the one area where sometimes animal experiments might very well be justifiable i don't think it's the case that every animal experiment is not justifiable i think most of them are and a lot more than get passed um are, are not justifiable because but so many other practices um that involve animals in our ordinary everyday life are in fact far more unjustifiable so for example um the killing of animals for food most people in the world in certainly in in industrialized countries do not need to eat animals in a way it's a kind of cultural practice we don't think of it as a it's, it's not a traditional cultural practice but that cultural practice of sitting down especially in south africa and i imagine in australia as well there's a big tradition of eating meat and it's it's often aligned to um masculinities and and um you know you can't be a real man unless you eat meat um that kind of cultural practice i think is um is not justifiable and i think you know i've written a paper where i argue that culture cannot condone cruelty um i am jewish and i've argued um for many years against um traditional slow kosher slaughter where the animals um are not um are not rendered unconscious their throats are slit while they're fully conscious i think that's completely morally unacceptable and um and so i do think that any cultural practice because mostly cultural practices are symbolic um cultures can change and they and they ought to change and people are often uh, told oh, you shouldn't criticize cultural practices well why not um mm. you know many cultural uh, cultures have oppressed women for hundreds if not thousands of years i think we ought to to be able to criticize cultures both our own um and and other peoples there's actually a philosopher called mary midgley who says that um if we do not she says that a, a general ban on criticizing the cultures of other people would lead to a general ban on all moral reasoning so she actually thinks it's a form of immoralism not to be able to criticize cultures and she says you know we often sit told well we don't understand cultural practices of other people and she says well we often don't understand many things about our own culture does that mean that we cannot criticize them and i i fully agree with her so i'm basically opposed to all cultural practices that involve cruelty um and killing of of animals i don't think i've yet to hear of one that is that is justifiable yeah so um do you think that cultural practices should be open to moral scrutiny i absolutely do um as i've just said i agree with 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 mary midgley for example who says that um the refusal to engage in this kind of cultural criticism would lead to a general ban on all moral reasoning because it would mean that unless you absolutely understand every single thing about a culture you cannot criticize it nobody understands every single thing about any culture including their own so 
I, I definitely agree. I mean, sometimes what ha happens is that people might um, attack a particular culture, let's say on the grounds of animal welfare, when their real agenda is to attack the culture in itself. So for example, some people might attack kosher slaughter, not because they really are opposed on animal welfare grounds, but because they're anti-Semitic and they want to find a reason to attack Judaism. And in fact, many critics of kosher slaughter have been called out as anti-Semites. As anti um, that might sometimes be the case, but I also think it's, it's wrong to say that any critic of a cultural practice is thereby racist or anti-Semitic or against that particular culture because of the effect it has is it simply silences all opposition, including opposition within that culture. I mean, the, the implication is that people who criticize a culture must be from outside the culture. That's not true. There are many people who are within a culture, I mean, such as myself. And I've written many, many letters to the local Jewish newspapers saying, look, you know, kosher slaughter is not actually morally acceptable. Um, in fact, factory farming, I think, is inconsistent with the dictates of not only Jewish culture, but I think many, many cultures, many, many cultures have got traditions of kindness towards animals. And yet somehow that often gets ignored when it comes to, um, to food. Things like factory farming are, because they happen behind closed doors, people don't really, it's not enough in your face. Um, the interests of animals somehow get kind of pushed pushed to the side. So um, I'm all in favor of, of open discussion. Um, as we were saying earlier, you know, free speech is very important. Um, and I think that includes the freedom to criticize one's own culture, the cultures of others, obviously in a respectful way. You don't want to go out of your way to be unnecessarily um, rude to people, but um, yes, I think we ought to. In fact, not only is it okay, I think we, we're morally obliged actually to call out because the victim's suffering is real. And if we don't, if we don't speak on their behalf, you know, who will? Well, it's interesting when you go back to the beginning of cultural practices because really somebody just made them up. And when you sort of look at the Hindu culture, it was, um, you know, they've got sacred cows. And um, mm. I read that that actually started because the cows were too valuable to eat, that they had to plough the fields, and that's why they were called sacred. And um, I, I suppose it might be along the same lines as um, the Jewish religion with not eating pigs because, you know, they, they might carry some disease. So that was probably um, where that eventuated from. And... I think that if people sort of realise that a lot of the cultural things, well, really, they're, they're just sort of made up for different reasons. And if you go into it and study it and look at the reasoning, um, you know, especially India with the caste system as well, that would have originated from, you know, some particular reasoning. So if you go back and sort of look at it, and you can actually look at a time when there wasn't any cultural practices and how, how things were organised then. Yes, absolutely. All cultural practices had to start somewhere in a, and, and they weren't always part of the culture. They became part of the culture. 
By the way, the ban on eating pigs is interesting. Um, in the in the Torah, there's no particular reason given. Um, so some people have speculated that it was for health reasons. I actually have a theory um, that one of the reasons, at least, for the ban on eating pigs was that there's apparently uh, a quite a similarity between pig flesh and human flesh. And in fact, apparently cannibals refer to humans as tall pigs because we, you know, we kind of in a way look, we were, you know, with hairless. Um, and in a way, I, I actually think that that was a ban on, because cannibalism did occur in um, certain, certain cultures around that time. And I think it was a kind of ban on, um, it was a taboo against cannibalism as well. Um, I haven't really tested out that theory, but I, um, I've, I've often wondered because there really is a taboo on eating on eating pigs. Um, I also think that cult, that the, the kosher slaughter also arose many, you know, hundreds of years ago, and perhaps at that time, you know, a thousand years ago, of course, it was more humane to slit the throat of an animal than to perhaps bludgeon it over the head, but because something was more humane a thousand years ago, it doesn't mean that it is still humane today. So cultures have to evolve. Um, it's absolutely essential. So, um, mm. yes. Yeah, that's that's a that's a really really interesting point. So, is there a difference between racism and speciesism? Um, in some sense, of course, yes, because uh, racism is unjustifiable prejudice that is held against somebody simply in virtue of, of being um, a different race and speciesism is about species and so in some sense the the discrimination is obviously aimed at different individuals um, and racism is, is against humans and speciesism is against against non-humans but I think the principle that underlies both racism and speciesism uh, and sexism actually is an unfair discrimination against a being on the basis of morally irrelevant criteria. So one of the reasons that we think that um, racism is, is unacceptable is because it discriminates against a person on biological or social grounds that are irrelevant to um, that particular moral, you know, so for example, treating somebody worse because they are of a, of a different race is completely unjustifiable. Sometimes discrimination can be can be justifiable. So, for example, I don't think it's um, it's just discriminatory. Let's say um, to give girls but not boys um, a vaccine against German measles, because if girls get pregnant and then that that has an effect on on the fetus. So sometimes discrimination on the basis of uh, of of sex particularly can be can be morally justifiable. But of course, to say women should earn less than men because uh, we are of a different sex, sex there is irrelevant to how well you can do in a particular job. And so similarly treating a being of another species differently, simply because it belongs to a different species uh, is completely morally unjustifiable. And we see this in our treatment of, I think it, it becomes particularly relevant if we look at non-human primates. And I've raised this question very often with, um, with the researchers and you don't really get a very good response. You know, I've said, look, you want, particularly in the use of non-human primates for psychological and neurological research, because you say to them, look, the reason you're using non-human primates 
is because they're cognitively uh, so similar to humans. If they're cognitively so similar to humans, should they not be treated ethically in the same way that humans are, right? You cannot have it both ways. You cannot say um, non-human primates are sufficiently sim similar to us to make it scientifically justifiable to use them for research, but they're sufficiently different from us to make it ethically acceptable in a way that it would not be ethically acceptable to use a human, even a human that was a similar cognitive um, status as the non-human primate. So their species is simply being used um, at, for the unjustifiable, unjustifiable discrimination. Yes, and I think it's completely morally unacceptable. Yeah, so look, um, getting back to um, the issue of cannibalism, I was mm. just thinking of that very interesting case where there were three people stranded on a desert island and they pretty well knew that, you know, help, well, they thought help wasn't going to come for a long time. So two of them got together and hit the other one over their head and started eating him. And I think as soon as they did that, the next thing a rescue ship came along <laughs> and... <laughs> It's <laughs> really bad timing. <laughs> That's really bad timing. <laughs> but but then the way the, the legal system dealt with it was quite interesting because, I mean, that was a real, you know, it hadn't really dealt with that sort of thing before because there is, there is sort of a different law at sea and I suppose, you know, there's survival instincts that, that kick in as well and... Yeah, so um, be interesting to see or to have a philosophical discussion about when when that sort of thing happens. And I mean, as you were saying, it was you know a lot more, a lot more common back then for that to happen, and people wanted to sort of you know say, oh, I'm more civilized, so we're going to move right away from that and not even eat anything that sort of is is like human. Yes, I think that the case, uh, that case is, is is a very interesting case because, of course, um, it was a matter. It seemed to them, at least, that it was a, a matter of of survival. Um, also, the case of voluntary cannibalism: is it morally acceptable for somebody to volunteer to be killed in order to be eaten? We, um, I I don't know. I mean, I'm not. Um, my main area of interest is not ethics. Full stop. So those sorts of cases, I I'd have to think about. I would I would think that. It would not be morally acceptable. Uh, I think that well, one cannot agree as a as a as a person with moral rights to sell yourself into slavery. I think there's something morally contradictory actually about that, about agreeing to give up your fundamental rights of what makes you you a person. So, I, I, my instinct is to say it's not morally acceptable. Um, obviously, in the case where you're literally going going to die. Um, is murder acceptable? Um, probably the best thing there to would have been to have taken chosen lots, of course, because of course, if, if it's morally acceptable for A to kill B, it must also be morally acceptable for B to kill A. So um, yes, but those are fascinating. Those are fascinating uh, issues. Well, I suppose it is too, because I think even even today, people sort of uh, some people think that. You, you have to eat meat, and if you don't eat meat, you're just going to die. I mean, the you know, being vegetarian or vegan, um, you know, it, it has got a lot more standing 
than it than it used to have, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Uh, so I think I think that that that's the thing as well. Maybe they thought, well, we have to eat some form of meat or we'll die. Um, but I mean, you actually could go into the sea and and eat seaweed. That would be enough to sort of keep you going for you know a reasonable length of time as well. So I suppose it's um, I suppose it's sort of different mindsets. You know, because when I yes. when I first became vegetarian, people used to say to me, "Well, what would you do if you were stranded on a desert island?" And I used to say, "Well, I haven't been stranded on a desert island recently. Have you?" You know. <laughs> yes, it's very interesting. Suddenly, you tell a person that you're vegetarian or vegan, and everybody becomes um, either a skeptical philosopher holding views that not even Descartes would have held. You know, well, don't plants have feelings or uh, too? Uh, or suddenly everybody's living on desert islands where there's nothing to eat except, you know, three pigs. And you kind of want to say, look, we'll deal with those counterfactual situations when we get there. But in the real world we'll be living in right now, uh, why are you still eating meat when you do not have to? How about we deal with this actual situation rather than some hypothetical counter hypothetical counterfactuals? Um, so... I think it's really an attempt to change the topic. People, I think, get very uncomfortable when you, as I think I heard somebody once say, everybody wants to change the world. Nobody wants to change themselves. It's always much easier to think about what the government should be doing or what somebody else should be doing. Well, how about what you put on your plate every day? That's a small act, but it's actually revolutionary. Um, so I think I would say, yeah, let's begin with our, our own plate and worry about somebody else's place uh, after that. Oh, so is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't already covered? Um, no, not really. I, I, I think in the um, in the questions that, that you sent me to think about, you did ask about future uh, areas of research. And I was thinking about that because I thought one of the things that I would like to do is actually combine my interest in psychoanalysis with my interest in, in animal ethics. I think it would be very interesting from a psychoanalytic point of view to understand something about our relationship with animals. It's often quite schizophrenic as you know, we have pets, we have dogs, and then we have animals that we eat. And our relationship with animals is very, very varied. And uh, I think I'd like to do some more research from, um, from that perspective. So that, that would be something interesting to explore, definitely. Right. Okay. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Thank you very much for having me. Um, yeah, it's been it's been great, and uh, I'm always happy to talk about uh, animals and animal ethics. So, uh, if any of your listeners wants to contact me as well, I'm at the University of Cape Town in the philosophy department, and I'd be very happy to to carry on the conversation. Oh, that's great. And I've been speaking with Dr. Eliza Galgut about animal welfare and rights. Well, that's all we have time for. I hope you enjoyed the program. I've certainly enjoyed your company. And do stay tuned for Dinosaur Prize Surprise.